Hello, I'm Andrew from Aro Video in Wellington, New Zealand, and welcome to episode 5 of Back to the Disc Player, the Aro Video podcast. It's inspired by our Adopter Movie Scheme, which enables film lovers to purchase an exclusive, lifelong affiliation with a title in the Aro Video library, or an acquisition that we may not have. It's where I get to talk to customers about their personal connection to a film or films they've chosen to adopt, and for us to find out a little bit about them as well. Episode 5 is a delightful chinwag with Sunday Star Times columnist Leah McFall, whom I came to know after she wrote a very generous article about her positive over-the-counter experience adopting a movie, and uh, more recently found out that Leah was releasing a book which compiles selected columns, so I thought it would be really timely to get her on this podcast to talk about that. As you'll hear, Leah is as engaging as a speaker as she is a writer and speaks eloquently on the subject of romantic comedies and her admiration for the late Nora Ephron in particular. We hope you enjoy my conversation with special guest Leah McFall. Hello, lovely Leah. Oh, will you (laughs) stop reference to the book? I see what you did there. Well, I I thought there would be a, you know, since we're going to be talking about romantic comedies, I thought that might be A, inappropriate, and B... Um, a reference to the book, yes, which I am uh, mostly through. Thank you very much, and very much enjoying a collection of columns um, that you've assembled. And the book is called Karori Confidential, which right. hopefully people there will find funny. Yeah, and it's um, selected columns from Sunday Magazine from sure. the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, that's pretty exciting. This is your first publication. It is. It is. I am. I was saying to you earlier. I'm daunted and excited, but I also feel a little disingenuous because most people, you know, they slave and slave over a book, and it's a real labour of love. What I did was sort of inadvertently write one right. at 800 words a week yeah. for two years, yeah. um, and then realised towards the end that there was a book in it. So I kind of feel, in some ways, I've had kind of a an easier road than a lot you of haven't people. paid your dues. Is <laughs> what you're saying? No, I know. A shortcut, uh, <laughs> n- not at all. Um, I. Uh, so how did that come about? The, uh, the the putting, you know, the fact that it was going to be a, uh, a, well, a book. I wasn't sure. I, I I wanted to, and I I sort of allude to this in the introduction. I wanted to sort of preserve what I'd written in some way, and have a book, a solid book. Partly for um, my dad, who's not very well. And it's sort of been a, a lifelong dream in a way. Or, or, or everyone in the family felt that one day I would write a book, you know, ever since I was a little kid. And it just, the need to have it written just became a little urgent more recently. So that was sort of an emotional reason. Um, I'd also been told that at least some of the columns were of a publishable quality, like might have a life outside the magazine. Nice. So I kind of latched onto that. Excellent. And then I I knocked on a couple of doors and Steve Braunius walked in. And when he says he's going to publish you, you don't say no. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Thank Uh, you. So congratulations. I... um, the launch of the book is timely. It's come for this podcast. It's coming up on October the seventeenth at Unity Books. So we yeah, hope so people will hear that before this. That's when the book becomes available. So it's not it's not as we speak. It's not in shops. Yet. Sure, excellent. So I've got a preview copy in front of me. Um, so there are a couple of chapters in particular of special re- uh, relevance uh, to what we're doing here on the podcast. Uh, one of them we can talk about a bit later, but the first one is entitled uh, Aro Video, funnily enough. Funny that. Yeah, and uh, we were, I remember at the time that you published this in the Sunday Star um, supplement and uh, being bowled over. <laughs> it really was probably the, the, the nicest, uh, uh, loveliest, that's the, the better word, uh, feedback that we'd had from a from a, a customer experience oh, um, I felt like it was one of those things where you were like the perfect mystery shopper <laughs> and I didn't see you coming so right. <laughs> if I had I would have overdone it and um, and blown it so it was really um, so I thank you again and oh, you were such the... a good sport about it you really were it was an all-round uh, <laughs> gratifying experience um, so I just wanted to uh, read a, a little bit, uh, just a little passage 
uh, out of here that I thought might be uh, appropriate um, and kind of funny. Um, so in the in the Ara video um, chapter, uh, the paragraph is um, the shop was so impossibly cool. I'll, I'll just have to say that um, by the way. I, a staff member once said that I was king of the nerds back in about this time. So I just wanted to have that caveat. In the actual year of 1995 that I was half afraid to go in, in case I'd be directed outside again by someone in a Stone Temple pilot's t-shirt. Well, that would never have happened. We would never wear a Stone Temple pilot's t-shirt. Uh, to enter therein suggested you had cultural knowledge extending backwards to early cinema, forwards through the French New Wave, and then all the way up to the emerging dogma movement. Knowledge, frankly, that I didn't have. I was only looking for a rom-com. So that piece stuck out to me for this particular conversation. Well, because it's documentary. I mean, that is all true. And I still feel that sense of... Um, it's not necessarily self-conscious cool, but just that vibe you get when you go into a store. It's usually an independently owned boutique store. Mm -hmm. And... The people behind the counter live and breathe this stuff. The people mm. who are shopping there do too. And it's just a shared sort of cultural understanding, a kind of nod between people who would otherwise be friends. Yeah. And it's always had that. And I do feel it's something of, a, of the warm beating heart of the street. It still is. I didn't years read later. that part, which which precedes mm. the paragraph that I uh, that I, I read, and and that um, offset any sort of. Uh, uh, of, of that uh, self-consciousness or you know that you might have felt but I if, if only you'd known then that I actually prefer Four Weddings and a Funeral to uh, most of Jean-Luc uh, Jean Godard's output you see what? I can't even pronounce his name <laughs> That's fantastic. so you're, you're actually in, in good company <laughs> I wish I'd known that I wouldn't have been so scared to come in because <laughs> um, not many people admit that yeah, in yeah. fact, I would, I would say possibly all of Jean-Luc Godard's output. <laughs> but anyway, me and, me and Jean-Luc oh, have, have an issue. Um, so the rom-com, I, um, I mean, there's another reason why we came in a roundabout way to, to the romantic comedy. Um, and I, I uh, will talk about that in the second chapter that's in your book uh, that's specifically about it. So I just wanted to, um, in my my wee research about romantic comedies. I thought I'd brush up and, uh, and explain the template being essentially a sympathetic, well-matched couple who must overcome contrived circumstances in order to be reconciled or united in love. Yeah, I'd, I'd concur with that. Yeah, I kind of poached it. I paraphrased a bit. Um, now, there's another... Um, tenet of the genre and that is that the the couple are usually brought together by a chance encounter known as something called the meat cute have you ever heard of the meat cute funnily enough my first piece i ever wrote for sunday and this was years ago it was like 20 i don't know 2007 something like that was about the meat cute and yeah. how the romantic comedy had ruined my life as a single woman in wellington in the 90s uh early 2000s when the man drought was you know, a fact for most women. Mm -hmm. um, yes, the meet cute. That moment, it's very memorable. Usually the two protagonists will come away with a really poor impression of each other. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of the, the, that's where the energy begins, the sort of the kinetic energy of that, of the story begins. And my beef at the time was that you couldn't meet cute in Wellington because you'd already met everyone five times or right. dated their cousin. Okay. You know, so that just wasn't possible in Wellington, a town this size. <laughs> that was my premise anyway. Yeah. But um yeah, the meet cute. You very didn't think important. of innovating and contriving your own scenario. I mean, you know, spilling drinks, you know, for want of a more original idea, you know, over the lap of somebody that you've already met is still a meet cute. I was holding out this is what I was holding out for. Some guy in Moore Wilson, like nudging over with his bananas face upwards. Yes, yes. Well, that's New World, isn't it? Chaff is. I don't know. It's just you know, not, knocking over a, a, a pyramid of oranges or something. Yeah, sure. And that's how we'd meet. Never happened. Right, sure. It was really, actually, really dull, slim. Right, right, right. Um, at the time. Yeah. Yes, the meet cute is is really important, and of course, in 
my favourite movie, which I know we'll get to when Harry met Sally. Mm. Um, that's the that's the title of the movie. Yeah. Um, it's right at the beginning where they meet as on the day they graduate from from university in Chicago, mismatched couple have to get in a car and drive to New York together. Right. And can't stand each other by the end of that drive. Mm -hmm. And that's like the first scene. Sure. So yeah, meet cutes yeah. are very important. Yeah. So did you feel it was uh, un unrealistic expectations around, I mean, because this is something that's been leveled at the romantic comedy genre, um, is this idea that, um, that it is, uh, I don't know, did, did you, did, is, it, is unrealistic expectations part of what you're talking about with that well, experience? Certainly it, it screwed up. <laughs> My, my romantic expectations. How do you know it's not a coincidence <laughs> that you were... Well, <laughs> and that you were taking right. solace in watching romantic comedies? Well, I mean, you know, the, the chicken or the egg. I, well, it, that, there's an argument to be had there. Sure. I mean, I spent a lot of time watching Hugh Grant and looking for Hugh Grant right. on the streets of okay. Wellington, and it didn't yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. There but are I, only I, so many I, Hugh Grants to go around. Yeah. There is a, a... And there's a big demand. People sort of think there's a naivety about... People who love romantic comedies, you know, that because um, they are escapists, they're un unashamedly escapist and they're really popular and commercial and they do tend to appeal to women and um, and are marketed at women. Hmm. Um, but I, I do think, well, maybe it's because I've watched a whole bunch of them and I've decided, you know, I'm a bit of a connoisseur and I know what I like. Mm -hmm. um, there is a level of sophistication in them that's really overlooked. Absolutely. Um, and I think... In some of them. In some of them, some of them are just trash, <laughs> and still yeah. are, you know. Yeah. I, in fact, I would say that the genre for me had a purple patch, a wonderful sort of golden period that happened to coincide with with my consumption of them, sort sure. of in my late twenties and mid thirties, mm -hmm. from say nineteen eighty nine, might as well yeah. put a, a date on it, yeah. when Harry met Sally, yeah. through till about two thousand and five. Mm -hmm. I'd say the last one. That, that really appealed to me strongly was was Pride and Prejudice, okay. um, Joe Wright's Pride yep. and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. um, is that uh, Kate, um, Kira Knightley? Now that was Kira Knightley, which was. was very controversial. It was that film, though. Yes, it, it was, was yeah. that version. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there, there's, there is brilliance within that genre, mm. brilliant writing, crisp, sparkling dialogue where... Mm. Men and women are intellectual equals. You know, the girl isn't just the chick. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, they do follow a formula, but but the best ones really challenge that formula. And I, I'm going to argue if, if we get if we argue, we mm. may end up arguing mm. um, that Nora Ephron really did take that that um, that that structure and basically bend the light. Mm -hmm. I mean, she did some some phenomenally wonderful things. Yeah. In fact, ruined romantic comedies for me because the first one I ever saw was When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. And it's I still think it's the best yeah, yeah. of the bunch. I um you're talking about playing with that uh, that template or, or or the format. Um there's an argument to say that uh actually a pure romantic comedy that doesn't uh, mess with the convention can be equally good and what, one of the things that I thought about um, in the last day or so was the idea that uh, just going back to the meet cute thing it's that idea that you can have any uh, it can be as contrived as anything to, to whatever the meeting situation is but it is the um, the, the, the resolution of the, the film where uh, contrivance is not welcome as, as far as I'm concerned and that the it's the actual earning of the relationship and the and the resolution and the um, that uh, makes it a satisfying film so um, so my theory was that you can have meet cute but you can't have resolve cute because after the happy happy ever after you need faith in those characters that they're going to be okay together would, would you agree with that kind of thing absolutely and i i think that's where romantic comedy has changed again it's sort of matured in a way because now personally i'm much more into i don't watch a lot of them anymore hmm. i'm much more interested in what happens next and you've got some some wonderful examples of how that's treated and enlarged 
with shows like Catastrophe, mm-hmm. where the meet you mm. was kind of a disaster, happened way back in series one, and they dispensed with it really quickly, and then continued to follow these characters who we are invested in, who we care about, who we recognise mm. because we are them. Um, for you know, coming up four seasons, mm-hmm. so I agree with you. I I think you can't a pat ending. It's a bit like eating McDonald's. You know, you get that uh, experience after you leave the cinema from watching a a movie that ends like that, a romantic comedy that ends like that. And mm. you feel, not cheated, but you don't feel nourished by it. It's not going to live in your memory. Well, it, it might be connecting the dots of what the template or the conventions say it's supposed to do, but uh, a good romantic comedy is one that really... Uh, one in which you're really invested in the characters and it pays off because you believe in the relationship or you believe that that was the way it was supposed to resolve even if they don't end up together necessarily and they end up with the best friend or whoever uh, yeah. that is true I mean with um, I know I keep banging on about Harry and Sally but I actually just rewatched some of it this morning so it's mm. quite fresh in my mind um, with those two I mean the the it's interesting because even though it's incredibly romantic and it's still considered a classic of the genre there was some controversy by the filmmakers the the screenwriters Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner about whether they should get together in fact they felt that Harry and Sally wouldn't have lasted and they would have gone their separate ways and that would have been actually a more mm. authentic way to finish the film, but commercially it wasn't box right. office. I see. Yeah. So yeah. they contrived the ending mm-hmm. to be a happy one, mm. but it still worked, mm. which I think is is testimony to the yeah. strength of the writing and, and the acting. It is. I, I, would, I, mean, I haven't seen When Harry Met Sally for Donkey's Years, probably since 1989, um, when we first opened the store, as it happens. Um, and I, I liked the film, but I, I guess like most people, I'm just sort of stuck on that iconic scene uh, and I don't really remember much about the ending, uh, you know, and I, I thought it was a good film, but it didn't, the ending or it didn't, I didn't, leave, I didn't carry it away with me right. um, when I saw it, you know, when it first oh. came out. So um, maybe that's why, you know, because there was a certain contrivance in the uh, in, in, in producers kind of saying, hey, we need to do this for commercial reasons. I mean, in, you know, it does have, you know, there's always that famous someone is running at the end of the scene to get the girl and no, tell... The graduate. Yeah, prestige. exactly, the yeah. run. And mm. there is a... Harry does run. He mm. does have to run um, to tell... Uh, mm. Sally that he loves her at a New Year's Eve party before the clock strikes 12 you know mm. um, there's not a lot more contrived you know that's a lot of contrivance funnily enough I forgot about that that bit because that they're the sort of scenes you think uh, you know come on yeah um, yeah and I didn't I didn't that did not live in my memory or yeah. other things yeah. Yeah. that appeal to me You become me more. a bit more selective yeah. about the memory yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. and maybe in 1989 yeah. I hadn't seen yeah. that many scenes where the guy runs after the girl and tells yeah. her he loves her. There's always that, it's, isn't there? Yeah. There's the, yeah. you know, the, the things become more cliched as they're, um, as they're imitated. That's right. And there have been many, many pale imitations yeah. of that movie. Um, so Nora Ephron, we've, uh, you, you've mentioned her and, and, and yes. she was somebody that came up in your email when I asked you to, to come on this podcast and uh, you said uh, you, you've... Um, uh, adopted another movie, and we'll talk about that soon. But uh, but you said, oh, I, I know much more about Nora Ephron. In fact, I have a chapter in my book, um, which you do. So tell tell us what uh, a little bit about the the Nora chapter or your relationship with with Nora and who she is. Well, um, Nora Ephron, she died a few years ago. Um, is best known as a screenwriter and a director, and even though she's got you know, something like a dozen movies to her credit, uh, a couple of them quite serious dramas, um, or one was Oscar nominated for the screenplay Silkwood, mm-hmm. if you remember that one, mm-hmm. based on a, a real event, yeah. um, about a, a whistleblower. Yeah, it was an Oscar, Oscar winner Oscar, with yeah, Cher. that's right. I think and Cher Meryl. won the Oscar, yeah. So mm-hmm. she had a screenwriting credit on that. Uh, she was a novelist. She started out as a basically a cadet reporter in the 60s in New York uh, about the time when news magazines were exploding. Mm-hmm. It was a really, really exciting scene. But she'd been born to screenwriter parents. Mm-hmm. She basically had a really, really charmed 
charmed existence yeah. in LA. Mm. Four, so four she grew daughters. up in LA. In she fact. grew up in LA. Mm. She was born in, in New York, but her parents were big time um, screenwriters. They moved to Beverly Hills when she was a toddler, mm. and they wrote um, plays and and movies together as husband and wife, right. um, Henry and Phoebe Efron. Yeah. And uh, so she grew up in this basically salon in Beverly Hills. You know, Dorothy mm. Parker, yeah. Cary Grant, all the great and good were in her orbit as she grew up. And um, she was a fast talker and very, very funny. Mm. And her parents mined her childhood for material and for, for comic material. Yeah. Um, so by the time she went to Wellesley, you know, she had an elite education. Yeah. And then when she moved to New York, she determined she'd be a reporter. So she spent the first act, if you like, of her career as a reporter and a writer. And she, she really made a name for herself very young in, the 20s and, uh, in her 20s and 30s. And famously married Carl Bernstein mm-hmm. while he was in, after the Watergate um, yep. scandal. So he was incredibly famous. She moved to Washington. They became part of the political class. And then they spectacularly divorced. Mm-hmm. When she, This is all relevant to her film career because sure. she was pregnant with her second son when she mm-hmm. discovered Carl Bernstein was having an affair and left him. And she wrote a novel thinly disguised about mm-hmm. about that experience which became a movie sure. so she wrote the screenplay as well and that movie had Marilyn again mm-hmm. who keeps cropping up in her films uh, and Jack Nicholson playing Carl Bernstein yep yeah. yeah. and so when the film's Heartburn Heartburn yeah, Did, yeah Heartburn yeah. and it's a great it's actually a better book I think yeah. than is but uh, I only became aware of her after I saw When Harry Met Sally mm-hmm. and um then she went on to direct Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah. And what was the other one? Um, uh, You've Got Mail. You've Got Mail. Yeah. And suddenly she is enormously famous, probably the most successful Hollywood female film director, maybe outside of Penny Marshall. Mm. She was, she was, you know, a powerful woman. Well, she was writing and directing. Writing and you directing. Know, she's an auteur, effectively. Yeah. And she really was. I mean, there is a mm. real kind of visual signature and kind of architecture to her films and mm-hmm. qualities they all have in common. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whip-smart writing is what mm. draws me in, mm. but there are loads of other things, like, you know, she obviously has her preferred actors, Tom Hanks and sure. Meg Ryan and, yeah. and then Meryl Streep. New York is usually a character in her films, similarly to Woody Allen, but I just find her films a lot warmer and her female characters a lot more authentic, if you're a, a, a sure. woman watching them. Yeah. So I started to really really enjoy we'll start to collect and enjoy and look out for her writing and I discovered um, that she wrote the most brilliant columns mm-hmm. uh, which of course now I'm incredibly interested in because I have to write a weekly column myself sure. she um, wrote the most oh my god brilliant searing unrepentant profiles you know she profiled everyone from um, Richard Nixon mm-hmm. and his daughter, the Kennedy White House. I mean, she's just a bit yeah. of a Forrest Gump. She was everywhere. Yeah, sure. Um, and she was very critical of the women's movement mm-hmm. in the 70s, you know, second wave feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, she was. She had a lot of kind of intellectual energy, but because she generally wrote for women and was read by women mm-hmm. and would often write about subjects interesting to women so a lot of domestic detail I mean yeah. later in life she'd honestly she'd toss off these brilliant short comic pieces about aging handbags how much she hated the egg white omelette yeah. you know things that seem mm-hmm. on the surface light and fluffy and kind of pointless and um, yeah. I mean she was a very privileged rich successful mm-hmm. woman you kind of think she, the, the fact she had a common touch at all is kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. But I was really um, quite powerfully influenced by her. I can tell yeah, from reading yeah. uh, what I have from, of your book. <laughs> yeah, if, honestly, I do think that the one thing I probably, hopefully don't imitate, but I'm certainly inspired by, is she has the ability in her films, which is why her dialogue's so amazing, but on the page to write exactly how she talks Mm -hmm. and that is actually really hard to do to Mm -hmm. write conversationally without being Mm -hmm. kind of pedestrian or a bit Mm. sloppy like you have to sparkle i have to hold Mm. your attention unless you're woody allen in which case it can (laughs) 
quite sort of irritating after a while. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Because I find him very whiny. Right. No, I, I love Woody, note. but, you know, I'm, 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 it's a love-hate relationship. I just, yeah. I don't know. It, it, yeah. I just yeah. can't we be won't bothered. Go, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, so that's it's what good. she, she's, I mean, an absolute geez. And a lot of women and a lot of screenwriters, like um, Lena Dunham springs to mind, mm-hmm. are really open about the debt they feel they owe her, not only as a trailblazing writer-director, yeah. uh, screenwriter, and a woman very much at the helm of her own projects, mm. but to me anyway, I, I think of her more what's on the page. Mm. Um, yeah. You, you, her, her genius, uh, as, you, as you call it, and, and you know, I, I've got no reason to disagree, <laughs> although I, I have noticed when I looked at her... Um, her filmography of uh, writing, producing, and directing variously, she did have quite a few flops. What do you put that down to, or, or what? You know, have you seen films like Mixed Nuts and oh, Lucky God. Numbers? I mean, I'm I'm not playing no, devil's no, no. advocate. I'm just she did. She curious. Had, she did. She had flops, and in some ways, I wish I knew sort of more about film history. Um, you know, they say the stakes are higher. Or, or, Mm-hmm. probably were then mm. you know in the mid 90s and early 2000s um you know hollywood doesn't give many second chances yeah um and but she i don't know she seemed to survive them yeah it was just kind of yeah missteps she but, sometimes co-wrote i think with her yeah. sister delia yeah. one of her flops was hanging up yep. which was semi-autobiographical yeah. a lot of her material yeah. is drawn straight from her life. Like she's quite um, unrepentant about that. She yeah. she used to say one of her mother's um, diktats was everything is copy Nora. Take sure. notes. Yeah. And she did. Like nothing yeah. was sacred. Indeed. And, and you know everything is copy is the name of uh, a documentary about Nora Ephron. Didn't you know that there was one? Was that by her son? Yes. Yeah. yeah. A, a friend yeah, of mine yeah, has yeah. taped that for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. so mm. yeah, um so, I don't know. She, she, yeah, she was definitely patchy and uneven. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, because she did um, after when Harry met Sally, and then she took on the directing reins for Sleepless in Seattle, and that was a monster hit. But she followed those successively um, by Mixed Nuts, a pretty a, a low point for Steve Martin's career, a, a Christmas movie, and then the downright dreadful Michael. With John Travolta yes. as a as an evil angel or a, or a sort of bad mouthing angel, do you, never, do you look, ever I see that? I never saw that partly because of his you, hair and those stupid overalls. No, it's such a terrible film. <laughs> it's so bad. But it did know. relatively well. So it did like didn't it get like ninety five million dollars or something? Like it, it wasn't. It probably it was did. Hideous. And what does that say <laughs> about the film going public? No, look, I, I I'm, think, just saying, you know, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. For old Nora. I know. But her. But the things that really. I agree with you. There's some this is not to bring down not. Nora. What is the, what the, I'm humanizing Nora. I'm saying, hey, this woman actually soared the the heights and then plumbed the depths, and then yes. and 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 still got up on her horse, and and uh, you know. Yeah. No, I and did it again. So you. I'm in in partly admiration. I, I think people getting through, you know, travesties is <laughs> not only fascinating well, but actually, admirable. I did much like. Oh, I've never said this in public. I didn't much like Julie and Julia. Right. Did I've you see that I've not one? seen it. Um, so she, that one I did think about watching one? it before our no, chat. But... You'd think, I mean, I think mm. it was well received. So it had yeah. the things that seemed to chime from her mm. head. So it had Meryl, for one thing. And it had food and mm. beautifully dressed, beautifully sort of realised, um, like costumes and... Uh, set design really vital because generally speaking the city the characters are in is is another character so she did the, the absolutely stunning sort of 50s paris and um beautifully evoked well acted mm. but for me it was a really cold film right and i was really disappointed by it okay. but it was considered a success but the one before that, Bewitched, I couldn't even watch. No, Andrew, I, even I watch. haven't watched Bewitched. But, and I never but will. I, I again, don't need to. just, yeah, I took it. Yeah, I... Um, but I will say, I always have to get that last word, Nora, sorry. Um, go for it. After the movies, 
her, her last movies, her writing, she, she really went out on a really high note. So she, her last two column collections, one uh, is I Feel Bad About My Neck, which is mm-hmm. just brilliantly funny about being in your 60s and, and trying to hold off aging and mm-hmm. you know your friends passing away. But I Remember Nothing, which was her last collection of um, columns, what was poignant about that collection and what is quite revealing about her is that her whole life in her movies and her writing, you think you're getting everything. You think she's telling you everything. You know, she made um, comedy out of a really difficult, awful divorce. Mm. Uh, and she, she wrote about practically everything else. Um, you realize in that last collection, she well, what you didn't know was that she was dying and she knew she was dying as she as she wrote those last pieces and there are sort of little clues that you can go back and see mm-hmm. real moments of poignancy and mm-hmm. um, kind of sadness which you don't normally get in her writing and um, she died in 2012 and it was a complete surprise to the Meryl Streeps and the mm. Tom, Tom Hanks because nobody knew mm. except her really close family mm. Which is slightly and, ironic, isn't it, for somebody who wore their life on their sleeve you know, and, really and everything is. was copy. Exactly, because it turns out everything isn't copy. Mm. And some things are... I mean, you, you didn't really know a great deal about her third and happiest marriage. She very rarely talked about her children. And uh, I think that's really interesting to note, especially at the moment when confessional writing and really frank and explicit female comedy and mm. sort of shows like Girls and performers mm. like Amy Schumer are all about unrepentant detail. You know? Sure. Um, we can be as explicit as guys can be. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have to be held to a sort of a, d- a different standard yeah. and we're muscular in our comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel a little old fashioned in that regard mm-hmm. because I try and do the same thing I know it's a really small scale thing, the, the 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 stuff I write, but I try and be as frank as I can be, mm. um, but I hold a lot back. Mm. And in the social media age, that's really oh. quite a dated. Yeah, but you've got Nora looking over your shoulder, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, that's right. And that's a, a you know that's yeah. a good thing. And and I I don't feel uh, you know. I'm a bit older than you, uh, so I'm possibly even more old-fashioned. But um, I, you know, the the comedies that, you know, the the what is it? The comedy of vulgarity or whatever whatever it's called um, uh, that Hollywood has been mining for, you know, ten fifteen years, where anything goes, anything can be talked about, and and mostly shown. Uh, I mostly uh, find it um, often. Uh, it's in lieu of actual ideas, so vulgarity, uh, you know, really just stands in for a lack of imagination often. So that would be my criticism. Uh, um, you know, I'm talking as a as a guy talking about guys' comedy. Um, I don't know. I just find there's something more um, satisfying about. I mean, you know, I'm no prude, but. When something is deliberately vulgar, it better be funny, otherwise it's awful. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think I know exactly what you mean. Um, My beef with it, really, is that... I mean, I do think that it's politically a bit more powerful coming from women at the moment. Hmm. Definitely. Sure. And I do think I'm not their target market, Yeah. which is fine. But um, it doesn't... It doesn't really appeal to me. I, I'm a little impatient with it because I feel that my, if you like, quote unquote, feminism has moved on along a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, from issues of body and sex mm-hmm. to um, older women's concerns. Sure. You know, motherhood yeah. and um, institutional sexism in the workplace and, yeah. and those sorts of daily. Absolutely. realities yeah so and, and and to be honest with you that's that's also influenced what i view now yeah. so i had the steady diet of romantic comedy yeah. in my mid-20s to say my mid-30s 
and now I'm, I'm, you know, I'd be more interested in your documentary mm. section here. Mm-hmm. So right. I, my tastes have definitely changed, yep. and that's natural. Yeah, you know. Yep. Yeah. I was going to ask you a trite question, like, uh, what do you think about the term chick flicks? Because sometimes that has been controversial in in the shop when it's been referred to. Um, and I, I yeah, I don't get offended by it. I don't mm. get offended by chick lit either. Right. Um, yep. To me, mm-hmm. those things, whether it's writing or whether it's films mm. made for women and made to be popular um, among women, mm. I just, I don't know, I, 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 I don't find it diminishing, I don't find it demeaning, I'm not ashamed of those mm. things, I mm. really enjoy I yeah. don't read a lot of it's a good rhyme, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, <laughs> what's wrong with it? Do you know what I mean? Like, I do, I do think though that there is something to be said for women. Um, that, like, for example, there's a um, a women's uh, an award for uh, women's comedy writing mm-hmm. fiction. Yeah, that's just been announced in England, and it. Partly because women who are enormously successful, like Marion Keys, I'm not sure if any of her stuff's been adapted for the screen, actually, mm-hmm. probably has, mm-hmm. um, have argued that, you know, women's humour in the book world hasn't been taken particularly seriously till now, and, and it's about time that women had, had humour prizes mm-hmm. that recognise and acknowledge the art of writing humour mm-hmm. by women. So, in that regard, there's obviously a thirst and a need for recognition mm. and I can completely understand that yeah. but if someone does it have a trite label um, yet no I can't it's, remember what it's called right. um, <laughs> okay. but no no I can't say it's ever bothered yeah. me yeah, I yeah. Just no I was just yeah, curious yeah. I, I, just looking again doing a little research I, I came across uh, something called guy cry flicks you ever heard of that no yeah it's a thing apparently <gasps> I should rent one for uh, my husband <laughs> <laughs> I um, anyway, I wasn't overly impressed by the the list of examples, Can which included um, Shawshank Redemption oh. um, and kind of weepy war films uh, like Saving Private Ryan. Anyway, it was like, ugh, no yeah. thanks. Deliverance. I, I, I don't know. I think that makes somebody cry for a different reason, <laughs> I know. doesn't it? It's, yeah. just the... it's more eye watering. <laughs> No, I'd never heard of that before. <laughs> um, Leah, can we um, talk about the movie that uh, that you adopted and expressed in eloquent detail in the chapter uh, in um, the Sunday Star Times and in your book? Uh, so, tell the listeners out there what the film was that you've adopted for the Arab Video Library, in case they don't know. Well, Bright Lights... Um, a documentary. I don't even know. Was it was HBO. I can't it remember. is. It was HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such so sad, really. Uh, Carrie Fisher, Hollywood legend, and her uh, screen legend mother, Debbie Reynolds, mm-hmm. they were being filmed. Um, I think they've been filmed over the course of a year for a fly on the wall documentary um, that was shot largely at their Hollywood compound. So they had uh, a house each in a kind of gated, beautiful part of, I guess it, Beverly Hills. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And because they are both, they're just, they're they're essentially icons, especially Debbie Reynolds. Mm. Um, It would have been a fantastic documentary to watch anyway. Mm. But it was just so terribly sad that towards the end of that summer, towards the end of filming, Carrie Fisher died uh, she had a massive heart attack on a flight back from England I, th- mm. I think she might have been filming catastrophe because she's mm. a, a supporting cast member on okay. catastrophe mm-hmm. died suddenly it was I think dreadful. it was just after um, the one of the Star Wars films though I, I think from, oh yeah, maybe yeah, she was flying yeah, back from, from yeah. yes yes yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the last Jedi or the last something. yeah that yeah. would make sense and so she died and then her mother bless her who was you can see in the film how trembly and old and in fact her decline is partly what gives the film such poignancy because mm. Carrie Fisher is having to confront the fact that her mother is so terribly old and fragile mm. after having been a force of nature for, for decades. But at the same um, time still performing in places like Las Vegas. So so, so she is fr- fragile and, and certainly diminishing, but, um, but still insistent about um, getting up in front of an audience, which, which gives her... Um, one of the things that gives the film 
texture I think you know, it's got a lot of layers to it, it do, it's, it's a beautifully rendered mm. film but of course they had to rush it out quite quickly I think it, it came out within weeks actually because I think it was a day or two days later Debbie Reynolds had a stroke mm-hmm. her son I think has since said brought on by the shock of Carrie Fisher's death because Carrie Fisher was only in her early mm-hmm. 60s I think mm-hmm. um, and died very really really very very sad so I uh, I'm not actually a big Star Wars mm-hmm. fan I've come around because my little boy George he is starting to enjoy Star Wars and really really loves it so I've I've watched the first three with him um, doesn't really hold my attention mm-hmm. if I can say that uh, but she Carrie Fisher was in When Harry Met Sally um, she was she was yeah, she played the sort of supportive best uh-huh. friend although that makes it sound like a stock character she really stole some scenes yeah comic actress um, you know par excellence but also a brilliant comic writer mm-hmm. with several books to her credit. Mm-hmm. Including and the most famous one, Postcards from the Edge. Which, which was, was made into a movie. Um, in fact, a year after When Harry Met Sally was released. So she was on fire at that stage if Amazing. she wasn't taking so many drugs on the side. I know. I mean, it really was... I don't know. There's something about her life. I mean, it, it's to be celebrated. I mean, she was, hmm. an extra, she was a truth teller, hmm. as they say, in a town that isn't that interested in the truth Um, and just a real I really like that she was unapologetic about her faults and her addictions Mm. and her struggles Mm. Uh, and there's a beautiful moment I think I wrote about that in the film that I've adopted um, Mm. where she talks about her bipolar disorder and basically in one very brief scene she sort of slightly breaks down on camera um, where she just, she says, wouldn't it be great if just once, you know, I could, uh, say something to this event, I could could just let go of my personality and lie in the sun. Mm. And you realise that this blessing and burden of having this, this, this mental illness, but also mm. this absolute brilliance mm. um, and genius... Um, that alienates her from living an you know ordinary life. Um, yeah. Is uh, there's something so tragic about that scene? So I really um, when I when I rented it, I think you guys I I asked for it and you ordered mm. it in, and it took a while, and it was really worth it. Mm. Um, I don't think I'd want to watch it twice, mm-hmm. just because it's quite draining. Yeah, mm. I I also thought that it's. Uh, um, a real celebration of Debbie Reynolds as well. Um, so you do get a two for one going on as a tribute documentary. And uh, I had forgotten what a huge star she was. Uh, well, I wasn't born when she was a huge star, but um, it, uh, so I thought that those, you know, Singing in the Rain is such an iconic film and she's a, a big part of that. Um, and she was she did many many films she had a, a huge career so um, I thought you know she's real Hollywood and the other thing was that she uh, if you remember she uh, makes a a collection of Hollywood memorabilia apparently second to nobody in in LA and that seemed to start to fund. Their, their later life. Did you, did you kind of get that impression? Yeah, I did. And I kind of thought, well, that's why they're not the Beals of Grey Gardens, uh, you know, because they certainly resemble them in some ways. Yeah, you're uh, right. Uh, you know, but the money kept flowing. It did. And, uh, and so yeah. they were, they were um, staved off that uh, kind of uh, decrepitude. There was something a little shabby, shabby chic about their homes. Yeah. Which I really liked. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, and also that kind of sadness that yeah, they she couldn't get that and, museum. You yeah. know, she Debbie yeah, Reynolds wanted right. to essentially gift yeah. her collection, didn't she? Exactly. And yeah. have it recognised. Yeah. And recognition. She seemed I mean that, that need for, for recognition. Mm. There's another sort of um, sequence where Carrie Fisher is taking her mum or um, to 
can't remember whether it was the the Screen Actors Guild or something. And she lifetime was, achievement, lifetime achievement yeah. award. Mm. And you got to see sort of you know in the green room and slightly behind the scenes and around the ferns how we're going to get Debbie Reynolds up onto the stage yeah. because she's so frail and she's received this award and how much it meant to her. And afterwards. Um, you know, the whole family gather in her living room and she's sitting there, genteel woman, and really, I mean, flawless makeup, flawless hair. And Carrie Fisher makes some sort of wisecrack, you know, about the awards. And if you remember, Debbie Fish, De- Debbie Reynolds wasn't having it. Mm. She wanted to be still, remember the moment, take in yep. the significance of the moment. Absolutely. And it was just mm. that kind of that ironic edgy mm. modern take on hollywood yeah with that no 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 this is a legacy you're absolutely right yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. this is for all the people who are mm. now dead yeah and there was a class about yeah. it I um i thought she, she's just a real sweetheart you know she she was she was gorgeous um i couldn't help but notice you know after the uh, you know the, the the romantic comedies we've been talking about and and nora efron and then watching this film that I did a, a night or two ago, uh, seeing the Hollywood dream or the fairy tale, this was very much the aftermath. If I could just connect, you know, the two things that you bring to this <laughs> this conversation, um, that uh, that it's a dream factory, and those dream factories deliver those romantic comedies that we, you know, invest in in many different ways, and then. The man behind the curtain is Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher dealing with their codependent, um, you know, love-hate relationship and, and all of that, you know? So there was a certain... Um, uh, it's, the, it's the other side of... Uh, well, I guess it's just separating the, the, the persona, the, the, the characters that they play, and that was... Um, um, most obvious with Princess Leia and, and Carrie Fisher, you know, her having to attend um, uh, science fiction conventions, which she really had no interest in whatsoever initially. Um, so I just, um, so that was just something I, I kind of thought this is still part of that story. Mm. Um, of, uh, I, I think, sorry, the other thing I'm getting at was the idea of uh, Debbie Reynolds being betrayed in her marriage by Eddie Fisher, who was a huge star at the time, and he went off with Elizabeth Taylor. Um, and so she, her heart was broken, and then she had, you know, successive uh, failures in relationships, and, and so did Carrie Fisher as well. So, again, it's an inverse of the romantic comedy tale. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought of it like that, but you're oh. right. I mean, there's there's a certain amount of hollowing out surely when you're when making shit up especially about love and happy ever after and happy families I mean there was such a strenuous need on behalf of Debbie Reynolds wasn't there to present a happy family I mean it wasn't as creepy as say Joan Crawford Mm. but there was that kind of come on in film my house film my children you know there was a very much a um they were they, they, they were always on that yeah. family weren't they yeah. um until they weren't yeah um and i yeah that the um aftermath as you call it the fallout is i mean frankly if, if carrie fisher hadn't been so damned funny if she couldn't have turned those sorts of small mm. tragic scenes mm. from her life into comedy mm. i mean i I don't know. It, the co- comedy was a gift, mm. and and it was it was her survival tactic, and it was medicine. Funny yeah. enough, Nora Ephron. Sorry to bring it back to Nora. Mm, that's right. Similarly, spun difficult things into comedy. I mean, Heartburn is the most obvious example of that because it's a complete film and it was a complete book. Mm. But um, you know, her parents descended into the most dreadful alcoholism. And her father, I've read, you know, wasn't faithful. And his her mother died sort of horribly from liver disease. And um, those are tough things to sugarcoat. Mm. But she managed to kind of 
skate along and make them amusing yep. along with other things. Mm. And her belief was that essentially you just need to pull up your socks and get on with it. And, you know, humour, and there's male writers as well, you could argue equally that male comedy writers don't always get their due, but I'm, I'm not sure that all comedy writers have sad lives. I don't necessarily think that's true. Mm. But it's finely tuned for a reason, you mm. know, that comic sensibility, whether it's to carve out some oxygen in your own family or to deal with a difficult past. Um, mm. So I think that's why I really admire and respect those people because um, they are making something beautiful and making it a gift mm. to you mm. I um, agree. in spite of what, what happened to them. And I think that's why Bright Lights appealed to me too. Mm. She was sad, but she was hilarious. Absolutely. No, it's not, it's not a depressing film. No. It, uh, it had a depressing end because their lives were not to be very soon after. Um, Leah, I want to just uh, talk a bit, go back to your book, uh, Karori Confidential, and, and just talk a little bit more about that. So I just have a, f a, f a few uh, questions or inquiries. Um, so one of the things that you've got some some nice little uh, chapter introductions you've you've sectioned off uh, your, uh, your chapters into into groups and i noticed that you put our videos under love and hope rather than sex and shopping <laughs> i just thought i'd say that i noticed that you don't have to comment um but i'll take it um the uh you talk about the assignment and uh, of of writing. You say, "I don't, I don't want to blink and miss it." You know, meaning what's going on in your life or what you're observing. Once a week, I write it down. Um, so, you're a busy mother of young children, and you have one day a week, it seems, of which you can uh, focus on expressing yourself uh, as an adult. That's How is true. that? <laughs> I love Mondays. <laughs> Mondays are usually my writing day. Yeah. Um, although now that George is at school, mm -hmm. you could argue I could I could write on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Right. And sometimes I have filed it a little right. late to Emily. But no, generally speaking, Monday was my day. Well, your day. book is a testament to Mondays. It is. Yeah. Monday is so, yeah. the best day of the week. Yeah. Um, so this is a one day a week book. Yeah. You know, you, yes. were, you were playing it down at the beginning of this interview. <laughs> I just wanted to say, well... You've only had one-seventh of the time to work on it. <laughs> so, you know what? I'm going to start. I'm going to use that. I'm going to say that at parties. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, it was... So, um, one thing... Emily, Emily Simpson is my editor, and she threw me a lifeline, really, when she offered me the job. It certainly was completely unexpected, and I nearly turned it down because it terrified me. Mm. But she gave me brilliant advice, and I'll never forget that phone call that day. And she said, Leah, you can overwrite a column. It's, it's short, it's quick, quick and dirty, you know. Don't revise it too much, you know, sleep on it if you have to. Mm. Just send it and then forget about it. Yep. Send it and then forget about it. And yep. that was really good advice because you don't, you know, the, a couple of times, probably twice in the first year, I think Emily basically went, no and pushed it back mm -hmm. have another go mm -hmm. and what happens is I've discovered that if I spend too long on something and I try and opine yeah. or make a moral point yeah. um, it doesn't work I'm, I am not gifted in that department right. you know, there are plenty of opinion writers who can give you a searing take on the day's events mm -hmm. politically or you know it, that's not me um, so very quickly, I really learned what my kind of corner was. Mm. And really, when you're at home all week, and at that time uh, I was with preschool children, but now obviously they're both at school, I, I didn't get out much, mm. partly because I had postnatal anxiety for a long time and found it really difficult to leave the house. Mm. You know, I had some real fears around going out in public with the mm. children. Mm. So I said to Emily, look, I hardly leave the house. And I really wasn't exaggerating at that point. And she said, throw open the window. Mm. And that made it okay 
to write about domestic detail, about shopping for mints, you mm. know, going to the pool. Um, Did you have a catalogue yeah. of subjects that were waiting to burst you know, onto the onto the page. And I sort or of did it. Like you, I honestly, you... not a note taker. I yeah. don't journal. I don't keep a diary. Yeah. Um, I would sit down pretty much cold. Like I, on a I'd Monday morning and, and finish yeah. it by the evening. Um, no, I didn't have that long. Mm. So generally, it's around three to four hours. Mm. Yeah, because that's quick, right? Mm. Um, it's a better column if I don't file it that day, mm-hmm. but generally I file mm-hmm. it that day. And bless um, Emily and the team, they're really good about me going, I need to change a sentence. I need to yeah. take that word out. Yeah. But I really took her advice mm-hmm. to heart, mm-hmm. you know, because it was really solid advice. Mm-hmm. And I had no experience. But advice is one thing, but uh, fighting natural instinct of perfectionism. I know you're a Virgo. Uh, yes, as am I. I. Am. Oh, well, there you so go. So I understand that idea of not wanting to let something go instinctively until it's, you know, uh, third, fourth draft and the, and the rest. But you know what's very liberating? Is that if someone had said to me 10 years ago, here, write a column. It's going to be in the paper. I would have run a mile mm. because that's such a terrifying prospect. But today... Everyone's an opinion writer. Mm-hmm. Everyone's tweeting everything yeah. they think. Yeah. Hot takes are abound. Mm-hmm. So I felt, you know, it's it certainly is a responsibility. It has to be of a publishable quality mm. because otherwise, yeah, I'm fired tomorrow. So anyone knew of your your wit and your way with a metaphor? Well, I'm I'm hanging in there two and a half years later. But no, but she trusted but, you to do the did, job. She, she knew did. of your. Your, your ability. Very, I mean, one day I might even yeah. I'll embarrass her and ask her why, but right. I'm very grateful to yeah. her for it. And it's the joy of my week. It's the highlight of my week. Yeah. But columns, you know, they don't, you can't bank on them because these things come and go and you can outstay your welcome. So I'm very yeah. conscious of that. Sure. I, I like there's a self-therapeutic say, thing you say here. Uh, one of probably many littered in the book, but one stood out was to experience joy, you need to feel your own value to those around you. Somehow you must find your tribe. And writing these columns helped me find mine. And I, I thought that was really lovely. You know, so. Um, and I know exactly what you mean. Um, the uh, Another um, uh, observation I had was you know the genre that you're working in uh, this kind of um uh what did i call it um you know an anxiety of aspiration or or even something like organization anxiety organization or the panic of not being organized seems to be a thread uh in your book i mean just just or a recurring motif you is that a typical kind of mother of young children thing to kind of feel like you're just never as organized as you want to be and if only you were you would be a better Leah that is god that's I have this conversation it feels to me every day if only I had a meal plan you know I've been in some homes where you know you can have a skill for household management I do not have a natural skill for it it's quite chaotic at my house. I mean, some things aren't. I mean, the children are obviously clean. We do their reading every night. They have a bath. But just that kind of... I always seem to be behind the eight ball. And I live and work at home. You know, mm. I don't have mm. a, an office job. I don't have that added pressure of a mm. commute and being out of the house for eight hours a day. I still can't keep on top of everything. And I do... Yeah, it's a constant low boil... Mm. of feeling that everything is getting on top of you, you know, from organising meals to making sure things aren't rotting in the fridge to, you know, making sure the towels aren't musty. Like, those things might not bother many people, but they Mm. really weigh on me. Mm. But at the same time, it's ridiculous. Mm. So there's a lot about, and I think one of the things I do seem to return to a lot in the columns is settling on things that are sold to women as solutions or women are invited to 
to get interested in. So whether that's a particular kind of fashion trend, which ultimately is ridiculous, or a kind of a one-hit lifestyle solution like, what's that um, Japanese art of um, Mary sparking joy, you know? Right. Thanking your sock before you okay. throw it away. Not familiar with that. Or you declutter yeah. your house, mm-hmm. like extreme decluttering. Mm. But before you throw out an old DVD or a, an outfit, mm. you thank it for its service. It's Japanese, it's right. Shinto. sure, okay. Yep. Um, and then you dispose of it mindfully Uh where you consciously Uh uncouple from it Uh which is just there's so much wrong with that whole thing Uh but just so so those things and I try and give women a break so when I see something that is patently ridiculous or feel we're being sold a lemon Mm. I try and sure call it out joke out of it yeah yeah yeah, sure. In a loving way. Yeah, yeah. And call it out and go, you know, we just, we did, that's yeah. one thing we don't need. We do not need that monkey on our back. We've got enough to deal with. Mm. Mm. So that is definitely a recurring theme. But if I, I can't pretend that, that I, I wish I was a better householder. Mm. But having that Monday or having the, the column and having that focus and that, uh, that, those parameters to get down your thoughts must be incredibly gratifying because you can organize be super organized around that and you produce something i have to you know i i will be letting the side down and also it's i'm contracted to do it so it is an obligation and i'm not saying that um every week is easy i've had some tough weeks lately Mm -hmm. finding the mental space but also coming up with um Mm -hmm. things that i think are of a standard yep it is really hard to meet a standard i noticed you i don't think you mentioned the kardashians once (laughs) Uh, I, I, uh, did I miss something or I mean that was I don't know if that was conscious uh, or not I, yeah well don't go there is all I no, I think they're on the way out <laughs> I think they're on the way out <laughs> good um, the uh, we've talked lots so we'll, mm. we'll wind up very shortly mm. but um, uh, I said here yeah the, the privacy dilemma you know I um um, you, talk, you, you mentioned that in there somewhere about feeling mixed feelings about uh, exposing yourself. And I noticed early on in our conversation, you were quick to reveal personal things, I guess, because they're already in the book. And, yeah. and so um, uh, you're, um, you're dealing with that okay? Is, is this the, a kind of a persona you're now inhabiting, this person that is... Um, I'm still not. I think I'm still quite uptight about. It's it's funny, you know, because someone said to me very recently, "Oh, will you write about your children?" But um, I'm actually really careful when I write about about them to reveal only the most general. I don't reveal anything mm. kind of identifying. Obviously, their names. Mm. Mm, sure. <laughs> um, but I try and write about them very sparingly, for example, and only anecdotes that could be true of any mm. five or six-year-old. Mm. Um, because for one thing, I just don't think it's fair on them. But aside from that, I really mean you as a as a identity. You you you're, you've um, now that you're, as I say, your your voice is out there um, uh, in the public domain, and uh, you've got to kind of own it. Uh, and you're, you know, oh, it takes it, it takes it takes, yeah. You, you, there's there's uh, you're having to forgo some of your privacy, and you I, I guess you also open yourself up to the usual um, negative noise that comes anybody's way, particularly women online. Is that something you've you've, you've dealt with yet, or? To be honest with you, I am you know touch wood this mm-hmm. near here. Mm. Um, I. I, I'm very lucky. I, yep. I don't have much of a, That's um, good to an hear. online presence. Right. So I don't attract yep. much of that stuff. Yep. Um, and partly because I don't really write controversially. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm writing about quite small right, scale, sure. ordinary things. Yep. Um, and I try not to snark. You mm-hmm. know, I try to be quite mm-hmm. warm. Mm-hmm. And the butt of the joke is usually me. Mm-hmm. So consequently, I'm actually... I don't have much of a profile and mm-hmm. in fact 
Luckily for me, um, for the first two years of the column, um, Al Hughes, an illustrator, would draw a bespoke cartoon each week. Mm -hmm. So you never saw my face. Okay. And the front of the book doesn't have my face. Right. So actually, I can live a very free life in Karori. <laughs> excellent. So it is Karori confidential after all. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Let's keep it that way. Um, it's been lovely having you. Oh. Leah, lovely Leah. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's yeah, been really nice. It, uh, it, it, yeah, it's been really good having you. Uh, and uh, thank you for those insights. I have one last question, which is, you know, a, a parting shot. Uh, are you going to turn this podcast experience into a column, do you think? Oh, <laughs> well, everything is copy. You've given me that idea. You've planted a little seed. It's going to germinate. Now, I wasn't hinting by <laughs> any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, well, this you is what know. happens when you talk to writers. So I just thought I'd get one step ahead of you. Well, you know, let's see what happens on Monday. Yeah. Anything could happen. Let's. Um, yeah. I hadn't thought, you know, I hadn't actually thought that far ahead. I haven't written this week's column yet. Oh, well. It's, it's late. Damn it. It's, what is it, Tuesday night? <laughs> Anyway, thank you, lovely talking. Likewise, thank okay. you so much. I hope you enjoyed that. My thanks to Svenda Strom, who recorded that episode. One fun fact I forgot to mention about uh, When Harry Met Sally is that the line, I'll have what she's having, was voted the 33rd most quotable line in the history of cinema by members of the AFI, the American Film Institute. So there you go. Before we go, I thought I might use this part of the podcast to give you a little insight into what it's like running a DVD store in 2018. Um, something a bit telling about the challenges that we constantly face and hopefully you'll find amusing. In this day and age, we all seem to be fighting for attention, a fight for eyeballs and clicks and eardrums in the case of this podcast. Online marketing is pretty much essential for surviving, but there's always pushback, which is all part of it. I thought I'd share with you a short email that a former customer sent us in response to receiving one of our newsletters. The subject line simply and ominously reads, how the hell do I? And then you open it up and it continues with unsubscribe from your newsletter. I haven't lived in the RO Valley since 2002. I don't rent or hire videos or have any particular interest in old movies. Yes, I rented some back in 2002. Tell me how to unsubscribe for Pete's sake. And I read you that in full confidence knowing that the anonymous person will not be listening to this. Anyway, thank you for listening. Don't forget you can support what we do directly by adopting a movie for yourself or someone you know, or you can become a valued friend of our video through Patreon, where we have a number of options for monthly support available. Also, if you think that you or someone you know would make an interesting guest for the podcast, then we'd love you to get in touch and we invite you to register your feedback, good or bad, about what you've heard through all the regular channels. And you can subscribe to this podcast uh, for automatic updates as well. Until next time, bye-bye.